You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst standing by to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over today's latest news in markets. Yesterday, the Senate passed a new $484 billion coronavirus relief package for small businesses, as well as additional funding for hospitals and for nationwide testing. $320 billion of that will be going to replenish the payroll protection program with $60 billion of that set aside for smaller lending institutions and another $60 billion for the Small Business Administration's disaster relief funds, now making farms and other agricultural entities, like ranches, eligible for aid. Based on how the last round of PPP loans was handled, the SBA has received a lot of public criticism for which companies received aid, crowding out other small businesses who are in desperate need of help. A Financial Times article had found that 83 public U.S. companies, including Shake Shack, Potbelly, and Nikola Motor secured over $330 million altogether from the program, averaging $4 million per company, when the SBA had said that the average loan would be $200,000 per recipient. Shake Shack has announced returning their $10 million loan, and President Trump has said that he'd ask for many of these companies to return their loans as well. The bill also provides $75 billion for hospitals and $25 billion for coronavirus testing. It outlines a mandate for the Trump administration to create a national strategy for testing in order to support states and municipalities with their own plans of action. The bill will be sent and voted on in the House on Thursday, and President Trump has indicated via Twitter that he would sign off on the bill. This new relief package is expected to be one of many more to follow in the coming weeks. With the SBA reloading the clip, the next bit of stimulus to be allocated is for the states, who are facing severe funding pressure as their tax bases dry up during the shutdown with the National Governors Association saying $500 billion at least is needed in support from the federal government. Democrats are willing and able to supply federal aid, but today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he's willing to let states go bankrupt. Yeah, I, I'm in, I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy uh, route. It saves some cities, and there's no good reason for it not to be available. The municipal bond market doesn't seem to take him very seriously, with yields barely moving on the day. No state has defaulted since the Great Depression. Illinois last week filed for $40 billion in aid from the federal government, and other states with heavily indebted pension systems are also under considerable strain like California and Illinois. These states continue to suffer with each having a higher daily confirmed case count in recent days. Now let's go to Ash and Roger for their analysis. Ash? Thanks, Nick. It's Wednesday, April 22nd. 2020, just after market close in London. I'm Ash Bennington for the Daily Briefing. Roger, is that a glass of wine you're drinking? Um, yes, it is. It's a, it's, it's a lovely Merceau, actually. Um, and thanks to Alexandra Daniel, who uh, who helped me purchase this one, um, who I think is a viewer and subscriber. So uh, very much uh, thanks to to that gentleman. Thank you, sir. It's a little later here in uh in, it's a little later in London than in New York. I'm still on coffee. Yes, it is. I'm allowed to have a glass now, fortunately. 
Americans. So, Roger, what are you looking at this morning, my time, afternoon, your time? Well, I think there's two things, which obviously everybody's everything's been dominated by the oil market. Um, and I've been sort of following it quite closely, um, sort of how it turned from being a story about the expiry into something obviously a lot more about the general malaise in the global economy. And I think the other thing is the lack of penetration of the funding that's coming from governments. I think it's happening in the US and in the UK. But the money really just doesn't seem to be getting through to the real people, the real economy as quickly as we'd like it to. And I, I still think that's going to be the big problem here. I think there's going to be a real difficulty with this going forward. Yeah, that's one of the huge stories here uh, in the U.S., the so-called Shake Shack loophole. Uh, you know, it's a story that's been uh, trending a bit, and it's getting a little bit of pickup in the mainstream press uh, because it has a little bit of a social component. The idea here is that, uh, exactly as you said, and as we've been discussing uh, for the last couple of weeks, that uh, businesses that have legions of lawyers and accountants and bankers uh, tend to get really ready access to the uh, Triple P money and other uh, SBA money uh, and other money generally provided by the government. And those that don't, do not. That's right. And we saw this here. It's a very, very similar thing in that, I mean, it's, it's improving now, but of the first £330 billion that have been pledged by the UK government, um, I think after the first couple of weeks, only a billion had been dispersed, showing you just how kind of pathetic the uptake was. I think the other problem with all of this is that a lot of the companies that are going for the various bailouts, they're companies which have been relatively unproductive. They're the ones that probably should have been let lie and let go a long time ago, but will come and feed at the trough. Whereas those that are kind of better productivity, but maybe smaller because they're, they're creating productivity, they're the ones who are failing to receive the funds. And those that are very, very productive currently, they'll probably be taxed in the future to pay for the loans that are now going out to these unproductive companies. So it's kind of all the wrong, wrong way around and kind of exacerbating, <clears throat> exacerbating the issues that we've seen over the last 10, maybe 15 years. What's your outlook on this, Roger? Are you optimistic that they'll be able to tweak these programs and get them fixed, or are you more pessimistic? Um, I think it's. I'm not so much pessimistic about the programs and tweaking them. I think they've they've already found. You know, we've already discovered that they're not efficient. I think the biggest problem here is just the scale. We've talked about it before. The scale is the problem. So it's the time frame. So they can tweak them. But they tweak them, but then how quickly do people get hold of the funds? And how quickly do actual fund, uh, do, does the economy open up in order for the people who receive the funds at the smaller end of the economy, as it were, to be able to turn it into kind of a meaningful survival package? And this is why I mentioned very, very long time ago that it's not just about the size of the bazooka, but it's about the aim of the bazooka. It's about the timing. It's where you direct it. If you have a two, three trillion bazooka, and we're priming one in Europe right now, but you aim it in the wrong place, then the velocity of that loan money is very, very low. And I think, unfortunately, that's going to be the case, because what we're doing here is we're fixing or we're using bazooka to fix the old world companies. What we need to do is fix the future, not the past. I think this is something that Daniel Lacal, who's been on Real Vision before, um, has been talking about quite extensively. Yeah, I think that's so spot on. And I, and I think there's probably, I think we can improve these programs. There's probably a limit, frankly, to the amount of, uh, of targeting that we can do with that bazooka. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if central planning were the right way to run an economy, um, the U.S. would have collapsed and the Soviet Union would be the surviving model. And do you think or have you seen or felt kind of any vibe about, you know, because there's been obviously more than just one story. There's been talk about hedge funds getting the money. Uh, a lot of these sort of companies that are over a billion in size getting it, do you think there is going to be a public outcry? Is there already a public outcry? Because it feels like, you know, people we talk to feel that this is completely wrong, 
But then, you know, when you're fixing a hole that's as big as this, you're always going to misfire every now and again. So when I talked about that bazooka, it's going to miss the mark. But do you feel that there is a reaction, a public reaction that could come down on this? Yeah, I think it's starting to get a little bit of pickup. Look, you know, Roger, we obsess about markets. Most people don't. Most people read business news in passing. They read the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It's a story that seems to be gaining traction and filtering into the broader public consciousness. And of course, uh, people who are uh, involved in small businesses, who own small businesses, who work at small businesses, are talking about this a great deal. So perhaps it's a story that is going to cross over. There's another round of funding that's just been approved here in the United States by the U.S. Senate, an additional 480. Four billion. Uh, that's going to be split between uh, business relief uh, and uh, testing and hospital programs. So let's see. Uh, let's see how that goes. One of the challenges was that, in addition to the uh, poor targeting issue. Uh, it was very challenging for people to physically get access through the web portals. The lenders were a little bit disorganized from what I've been hearing. Uh, and then simply the funds ran out. Uh, so we've got that refreshed. Hopefully, version 2.0 will be more accurate. Um, and. Uh, you know, I guess the good news is this the story starts to disappear. And do you think that I mean these stories will disappear because there's sort of this whole sort of swathe of stories um, about this, you know, at all these different levels. For instance, Disney I think have furloughed a hundred thousand staff, but are still planning I think on either the dividend or the buybacks and paying their their board quite handsomely. And I think again this is the sort of thing which we're hearing across the board. I think is it IBM? Um, I saw a tweet um, today. I think IBM has bought back 140 billion of shares over the last 10 years, but it's got a market cap of 105 billion. So it's destroyed um, capital there. Revenues are now down. So these are companies which, and, and you know, I'm just naming one there, but time and time again, corporate America, corporate Europe, UK has done it through dividends rather than through buybacks. But they've continued to favor the wealthy, which is the shareholders, at the expense of everybody else. And here we are now seeing the employees getting screwed. Customers have always kind of been screwed for the last 10 years. Mm. And it all, it's all, isn't this all going to come to a head, do you think? Well, first, I would say no surprises there for Real Vision viewers. This is something that we've been talking about on the channel for some time. Uh, Ralph Hell has been talking about it and others. Uh, Look, I, I, we don't know. I think it, it depends on how sour the mood turns. I think a lot of this sort of, you know, is going to play out based on how effective uh, the response to suppressing the virus is and how soon the economy reopens. I think if it doesn't and if there's real pain that begins to seep through uh, into uh, into households and uh, small businesses at an even greater level than we've already seen, I would expect more of an outcry. I mean, because what it really brings to me is this whole, you know, what the oil price was telling us this week, which is that the oil price was a reflection of the real economy, and the real economy is under a lot of pressure, which is what, you know, in some ways, the failure of all this disimbursement of loans is reflecting the difficulties of getting the real economy going. But in some ways, the big question for all of us, everybody watching in a way, is the real economy is clearly under a lot of a lot of pressure, just, I mean, ridiculous pressure. And yet financial assets, when you look at the S&P, and particularly the NASDAQ, are soaring high because of central bank largesse. And I guess the question that everybody is still fascinated about is, is what oil's telling us going to be the true story in the same way in, uh, that bond yields is trying to tell us, which is things are bad and, and are still looking like they're getting worse? Or should we look at the equity market and the investment grade space within corporate bonds and say, you know what, actually, this will be OK. We've just got to be patient. It's the, it's the $100 million billion question. So I don't know where you lie on that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I tend to look more at the real economy. Um, it's very difficult to see 
what's happening outside our windows uh, and feel optimistic about the things that are that are happening right now. And I think that the oil market, uh, you know, as a commodity that reflects actual consumption and physical delivery, uh, is is telling you where actual state of the economy really is. Look, I think if you look back, if you look at the academic data, uh, clearly bond markets have a higher predictive accuracy than uh, U.S. equity markets. But I think you're spot on about, um, about U.S. equity markets and global equity markets responding effectively to central bank largesse. Um, I'm not saying that it's something that I'm, I'm necessarily opposed to. I don't know what the other option is. Um, you know, there isn't another more effective way to get liquidity into the economy to try and keep things flowing. Um, and to your question about does it does it continue? I think, look, you know, it's the old cliche that the best indicator of future performance is past performance. It's not uh, flawless, but if you were to look at uh, the history of what the Fed has done, what the ECB has done, what the BOE has done uh, since two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, I think you'd tend to incline to believe that it's something that's likely to continue. They, I mean, they're going to continue on that that MMT path of, of excess liquidity. It's, it's, I guess it's things like when I look at the Nasdaq, and you know, when you look at the seventy percent of employ, employment which comes from small businesses, if they don't have any income, then they've got nothing. They've got no income in which they can buy Apple goods. No, no income that they can carry on buying Netflix, etc. So the revenues of these companies, which are doing so well at the moment, will become impaired if the majority of their customers are struggling for cash. And there's the other two elements to this as well, which I think will come to play. One is, I mentioned it earlier, though these are the companies which are cash rich. Well, who's going to get taxed in the future to pay for all of this? It's going to be the cash rich. And these are companies which have got away with low taxes globally for a long time. They're going to be targeted. And the second thing is that these are companies often that have um, large cash piles for buybacks as well. If we frown upon buybacks, these are guys who are probably going to start embarking on acquisitions more aggressively. And acquisitions are rarely, um, um, they're nearly always dilutive ultimately to earnings. So these PEs, these uh, valuations, which are sky high at the moment, I think will come under pressure from that. So I think that not only is it difficult for the central banks to prop up the equity market ad infinitum, I think the bits of the equity market that are doing well will be the bits that they will have to eventually tap in order to pay for all this, because it's not going away. Yeah, as you point out, we're in the domain of unintended consequences, aren't we? And this is the challenge with central planning. This is the challenge with uh, markets not making decisions and being rather being supported by central bank liquidity. I think there are a lot of issues, as you point to, that uh, that could potentially come to a head. Uh, I think that they're going to have to do something else with that cash. I think that uh, you know stock buybacks are going to be either politically unpalatable or they're simply going to be banned uh, under the terms of the uh, agreements that these companies are going to uh, engage in with the government. Uh, and then you have these uh, these marginal propensity to spend, marginal propensity to save issues that come up. If you have an increasingly smaller base of people uh, who are making progressively more money, there's not consumption that's generated by that. You know, And that ties into the sort of the other side of the coin about small businesses. Small businesses employ, I think the number you cited was 70 percent, and they also account for the lion's share of new job creation. So if small businesses uh, are impaired uh, and uh, you have an increasingly smaller number of people in Silicon Valley uh, with higher paper net worths based on the value of their equity in, uh, in their you know, large cap uh, tech companies, that doesn't bode well for the economy. And I would also say there's also an impact uh, on, on urban centers, which have increasingly uh, in the US and in, in the UK and elsewhere uh, in the developed world have gotten uh, tremendous proportions of uh, the population recently. This is where young people want to go. This is where people want to go and achieve their dreams. And 
if you have those places uh, being sort of blighted by small businesses, the cafes, the coffee shops, the wine bars, the restaurants being destroyed as a consequence of that, it really begins to look uh, a little bit like a bleak Blade Runner future. Now, I'm not saying that that's the direction that we're going, and I'm certainly not saying it's going to be a permanent state of affairs. But as you point out, Roger, so eloquently, I think there's a tremendous amount of risk that's lurking beneath the surface. And it's interesting about these urban centres because we've seen, in some ways, a rejection of of suburban living for urban living, particularly amongst the younger generation. Right. It's revived many, many urban centres. I mean, in the UK particularly, I know there's obviously some urban centres in the US which have have remained in decline. But in the UK, we have seen a massive revival of some of the worst urban centres of Britain, places like inner city Manchester, Liverpool, etc. Now, we're hearing already a lot of people who want to move out of those cities, even though no one expects this to repeat itself in the near future. But... This has made people realize that maybe city living is not the best place to be. But I'm wondering, actually, maybe we get a, a last kind of almost like the death throw, but a surge in potential car demand, because a lot of people will reject um, transportation, mass transportation on the back of this. People want to probably travel, but if there's air, air travel is not something you want to do, you probably don't want to travel on trains, certainly not on congested, congested undergrounds like we have in London. I'm just wondering whether over the next year on the other side of this, we actually have a splurge on cars. It's that final, final move. And actually, that might be the surprise package of, of next year. It's it's an interesting question. I'm 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 a little bit skeptical about I you know it's journalists and trend pieces. I think they have a predictive record that looks a lot like economists who accurately predict 15 of the last three recessions. You know, there's been a lot of ink spilled in the New York Times about the idea that people are are leaving uh, cities. I don't know how much that's happening at the margin. I don't know whether it's going to be a durable trend. I think there are a lot of people who probably want to leave a, a city at a time like this. It's it's a you know it's a disconcerting thing to be walking around in New York City. Street and see uh, you know your favorite cafe boarded up and to see people you know wearing masks and uh, have someone snap at your line in the grocery store to tell you to stand six feet back. I understand that people are certainly leaving right now. I don't know you know again so much is dependent on the trajectory of the virus on a on a forward looking basis. I don't really know if that's going to be a durable trend. Are we going to be having this conversation in 2022 that we are now in the era of the suburb uh, or do things revive? What do you think? I think it depends on how much we see the concentration of Mike Green's theory, which is that if we do see the concentration, i.e. the small businesses go to the wall, leaving the large businesses in the ascendancy, and then the choice declines. Because one of the great things about urban centres is the vibrancy of the the variability of, of options and the choices that you have. And if those choices are diminished because we have concentration, then I think that that, that will make the urban centre just less attractive. Now, I don't, think, I don't think this is going to happen in any sudden way where we go, oh my God, there was an, there was a, an exodus. Right. It's something which I think will be, it's one of the things that might be a generational move where the generation that currently is living in the centres and enjoying the urban centres will find that some of those urban centres are less exciting. Not because of the danger of um, future viruses or anything like that, just right. simply because and I think I think it's actually a little bit more of a situation in the US than in the UK. But if you see a lot of these small businesses disappear and they get replaced by the bigger businesses, where restaurant chains, I think, in the US are much, much bigger than they are in the UK. We've got one or two. They're nearly all imported, but they supplement basically everything. Basically, the whole of the UK is a bit like New York in terms of the restaurant business. So right. I think the UK will be fine for that. But if these restaurants do come in, and other survivors, then I think that this is a kind of world where it just diminishes the urban living a little bit. And so I think we'll see a trickle, but a trickle is what you need to actually make these places just suddenly become, you know, you reverse the trend of the last 10, 15, 20 years. 
Yeah, I hope the mom and pop restaurants and cafes stay in New York. I'd hate to live uh, in uh, in a place that looked like uh, wall to wall Olive Gardens. No, absolutely. I guess what's going to be interesting is is when we go sort of six months down the road. Do we think that the world that we're going to be in is actually that significantly different? Because it always feels visceral when you're there. But in six months' time, will it actually be physically that different? Emotionally, it might be. This has been emotional scarring. But in six months' time, we might walk around you know, London, New York, and there'll be a few shops boarded up and a few places boarded up. But actually, the reality often is that we feel that something is a 2% change, is a massive change because that's how humans work, but actually it's 98% the same. And right. I'm looking at things like, you know, I saw the capacity utilization data in China, and this is capacity utilization of old data, not official data. So this is, you know, looking at, you know, um, satellite imagery and all the rest of it. And it went down from 90% to 65%. Now, it actually feels we've gone to 10%, but the reality is we have actually probably gone from 90 down to 65 or 70. It's a big change because we normally move from 90 to 89 and go, oh, my God, that's a slowdown. So this is a shocking change from 90 to 65 but the reality is that means that the majority of things were still operating. And that's probably going to be true in the UK and the US right here, right now, even in lockdown. So when we come out on the other side, it's how quickly can we get over the emotional scars, which is effectively what Raoul was talking about at the beginning. He said it's going to be the reaction, the emotional reaction, rather than the actual physical manifestation of COVID that's going to be the real problem for the global economy. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that uh, the great news here in New York is that uh, the curve is definitely flattening. We're definitely, we appear to be on the backside of this phase. Hospitalizations are in decline. Uh, fortunately, the number of people who are dying is in decline. I guess the question is, and we hate to sound like a broken record on this, but the unknown unknown here is whether or not this is something that makes a resurgence uh, in the winter. We've already been reading stories to that effect. Um, you know, and again, not wanting to sound like a broken record, but there is uncertainty. I, I read an interview uh, over the weekend with uh, Charlie Munger, uh, who obviously is uh, who's uh, Warren Buffett's stock picker and one of the best known uh, deep thinkers in the space. And uh, I was impressed by the epistemic humility of the interview. How many times he just said, we don't know. We just don't know. We simply don't know. And uh, we're not going to take action as a consequence of that. Look, I think if I were if I were looking forward and doing the analysis, my suspicion is that based on what we've already seen, if the curve continues to flatten, if the trends that are in place now remain in place, I'm pretty bullish about the future of, of New York City and its ability to recover relatively quickly uh, from this. Uh, but if it continues to go on uh, to phase two and phase three, you know, my sense is uh, all bets are off. And so then it comes to the question, and it's, it's the big sort of existential question, is that the damage that the, of the response, the, the damage of the response, because essentially the response has been to restrict the damage in the short term, but could the damage of the response over the longer term be worse? And it also goes back to, and I was having a, a bit of to and fro on, on email with um, a, a Real Vision contributor about this, which is the question that needs to be asked, that, that is sort of being asked, but really isn't, is that, is the uh, sum total of future human suffering going to be greater than the sum total of present um, human suffering? Now, it's a very difficult one because it's all visceral today and we can put a number on it today and the future is going to take place over many, many years. But the whole point of this is, you know, when we look at that, who's actually going to pay for this? It's my seven-year-old and 10-year-old kids are going to be paying for this. And is their future going to be made a lot more bleaker from this? And I think that's the question that still needs to be asked, because the central bank actions, if you destroy the opportunities for the highly productive up and coming companies, whilst right. keeping alive the unproductive weak companies, then we're going to go through a low, low growth um, bifurcation world of, of extreme inequality uh, for the extended future. 
This is such a crucial question, and the question really is: is the is the cure worse than the disease? Uh, I, I think it, the answer is it depends. Um, in terms of economic damage, obviously the human cost. It's pretty clear that the disease is worse than the cure. But look, I think I think that it really does depend on what happens with the subsequent phases and and where we are uh, with the science. I mean, my own sense is that if uh, if that we do get through uh, phase one and there is no substantive or significant phase two, I think that a lot of the stimulus simply gets withdrawn. It's re relatively easy to drain excess liquidity on the central banking side. Uh, the numbers, the headline numbers on the uh, fiscal side seem to be uh, to be a bit large, but I'm an optimist ultimately in the longer term about the U.S. economy. I really do think that it depends on, on what happens with those forward phases. You know, one of the things that you were pointing to interesting, which is it was the way human beings perceive things, you know, the idea that you have change at the margin and it goes from 90 to, um, you know, 83 and it feels like a huge change. It's so interesting the way that we perceive these news cycles, right? So a couple of days ago, uh, we saw a rally at the end of last week, I believe, uh, on the uh, on the news that the uh, trials for the antiviral drug remdesivir uh, were looking quite favorable, and it looked as though it had a very favorable profile to proceed as a treatment uh, for for COVID. Uh, and then, you know, we have some gyrations in the oil market, and suddenly those stories disappear from the front pages of of the business uh, newspapers. I think, in terms of actually. Um, Really changing the the ball game here. That drug uh, and others of similar classes could really be the key to this. Uh, if we're able to suppress symptoms, I mean, the, the the preliminary data and it was very preliminary, so we don't want to get people excessively optimistic. Looked really, really good. Uh, and if we're able to make that progress, about I mean, I think that that's really the thing to focus on. It's harder to measure, right? This is another sort of human perception issue, which is it's very easy to default to analyzing high-frequency data series because there's this morally satisfying feeling of you can look at a data series and it changes hour by hour. And you have this illusion of progress or the illusion of control or the illusion of understanding. The real issues here, the fundamental issues, are where are we in the fight against this uh, on the science side? And if those uh, signs continue with the uh, antiviral drugs to point uh, that we can begin to really eliminate people's suffering. We can we can not cure people, but we can treat them uh, so that they don't need to be on invasive ventilators. That would be incredibly good news. And that's the sort of thing that really matters for the economy. See, I think I think that the the um, response on the actual um, virus site, I think, will eventually win out. I am actually more pessimistic on the um, central bank withdrawal liquidity side. And the reason why I say that is if you look at, you know, if we go back over the last 10 years, and you can see in, in the early stage of the Fed balance sheet expanding, it was it's almost lockstep with the S&P. And then the Fed balance sheet flattened out in 2014-15. And for a while, equity markets struggled. And that was because the ECB and the Bank of Japan stepped in with much more liquidity. But it was in yen and it was in euros. The dollar went up. Euros and yens went down. So we had a dollar crisis and an earnings recession. Eventually in 2016, they worked out, hang on a minute, we've got to keep the dollar lid on the dollar, which they did. So now each yen and each euro of liquidity was equivalent to effectively one dollar of liquidity. Global balance sheet expansion continued, and the S&P went back in lockstep with the expansion of global balance sheets. Now, if you come to what happened in September of last year with the whole repo situation, up until mm. mid-February, the S&P went up and down with the up and down of the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed balance sheet expanded, which it did on most weeks. Then the S&P went up. There was a couple of weeks where they contracted the balance sheet very, very small, and the S&P fell. Then they had this one week 
where they contracted the balance sheet and the S&P continued to rally. And they thought, you know what, we'll do that again. And what we'll do is, if there's anything wrong with this, we'll hide behind what's going on with COVID, because this was in mid-February. The first time since September when the Fed had two consecutive weeks of reducing the balance sheet was when the markets imploded. It coincided with the whole um, COVID going global. But I don't think it was any, uh, it's not a co- it is a coincidence. No, it's not. I think it's absolutely part of the theme or part of the, the idea here is that the Fed should have been adding liquidity then, but they pulled it out. The reason why this matters is that they add the liquidity, markets go up. When they still, the rate of change of liquidity starts to properly slow, I think markets will struggle. If they pull it out, history shows us that the markets don't like that at all. I.e., the equity market is a function of liquidity, and this is why valuations haven't mattered for 10 years, because what matters is liquidity. So I'm a little bit worried that we're stuck with these central banks. Right. Have they got our backs? They've got the market, but they haven't got our backs, if that can be in the same sentence. Well, yeah, and it, it also brings up the question about the way that, that uh, that's been distorted in terms of the, the types of uh, the types of even U.S. equities and large cap U.S. equities that have benefited. We've seen a significant benefit, uh, for example, to growth stocks over value stocks uh, as a consequence of central bank liquidity. Um, and in some ways, it, we're, we're victims of our own success. We haven't had runaway uh, inflation, uh, and uh, we've had relatively steady, uh, relatively steady growth until the COVID crisis. So as a consequence of that. There hasn't been this uh, sort of really intense moment where central banks have had to uh, stop and back off and think, "My God, what are we doing here?" You know, your point about the uh, about the the repo market is is absolutely spot on. There's a great paper that I read that came out of uh, BIS a couple of months ago. I'll post it below in the comments, where BIS effectively says, "Yeah, look, this is a, the dislocations in the repo market are a function of central bank liquidity." I think that um, it's interesting that even the the organization that uh, you know effectively represents Central banks is saying that this is this is creating distortions. Um, so it's a, it's very much an interesting question. I wonder uh, if what we're seeing here, and I'm curious about your view of this, is are we actually seeing secular deflation driven by technology, and then a sort of papering over by central banks trying to compensate for that by adding massive liquidity, not making the structural changes to economies that are required to help broad base of workers. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the demographics is a key element to all of that, but productivity has been low. There's this abomination of GDP where GDP goes up, but if GDP goes up by one unit, but debt goes up by four units, well, that's leverage, not real growth. Right. That's what we've had. We've not had growth. So we talk about we've had you know, anemic growth. Well, what we've had is growth, which has taken you know four times more debt to do it or three times more debt. So it's been this this false economy that we've seen, and this is where the velocity of money has been in decline, almost at the same pace as the rate of you know, balance sheet expansion has been um, increasing. And I think that's the problem that we've got going forward: is how do you get out of that? The very companies that you want us to lift, want, we want to lift us out of this, are the ones that were probably not getting the loans right now because they're fledgling companies with a small number of people. The companies that are getting them are the very ones that have been effectively capping productivity and capping growth and requiring more and more debt. And the only reason why equity markets have gone up is because they've been borrowing debt to buy back their shares. And that game's now over. So all all in all, to me, that means that the forward-looking growth prospects from this remain very much subdued because of that. And I think the central banks, unfortunately, will be very much at the center of maintaining that status quo unless, and this is the unfortunate side of it, unless the system has been broken by the experience of the last six weeks. And that's the unfortunate thing is to move on to a new paradigm, we need to break something and breaking something is not good. 
But to move on to a new paradigm, we need to get get those central banks out of basically backstopping everything, but slowing the velocity of money. Roger, can we try and tie this one up on an upbeat note? No. <laughs> Fair enough. I, you know, I think that overall the the economy itself. I think we've been upbeat, and that the reality is that we probably think that the individuals, the humans themselves, will come out of this pretty well. It's the central banks. And that's the situation here. It's the central banks are going to prevent the rest of the population from being able to come out of this all guns blazing. And if they don't, if they need to step back, but if they step back, it means we have to take pain on asset prices now so that growth in the future post-COVID will be far better. So I'm sort of optimistic, but unfortunately, I think the MMT experiment is in full swing and they're going to go down that route and okay, that's not a great note to to end on, but it just it, what I'm saying here is it's the central banks which are once again stepping into a theoretical breach, but it's a breach of their own making. It's not the COVID breach; it's the breach of low productivity and high debt. And using more high using extra debt is not going to solve that that problem. So even forgetting the issues around COVID, this is something that has been manifest in the economy for the last ten years. It's not an experiment anymore, Roger. MMT has jumped out of the beaker, come out of the lab. It's on Threadneedle Street. It's in the Eccles building, and uh, it's in full swing. So we're going to have to see, I guess. We're going to have to accept it. And if that means that equities go higher in the short term, then you go with that. I still think we're in the rebound phase and we're rolling over. But, you know, we've got to accept that that might be the case, that the MMT is in, in full play and not the weaker economy. Great analysis, as always. Thanks for joining us, Roger. Good to speak to you. Thanks a lot. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.